and this is the art of less doing. I'm going to teach you how to optimize, automate, and outsource everything in your life, including your health, in order to be more effective. I want you to stress less, free up as much time as possible, and do the things you want to do. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to episode 153 of the Less Doing Podcast. I'm doing this co-host section solo again tonight. It's just been too difficult for Felix and I to coordinate schedules. Things have absolutely been crazy since the Less Doing Live event, May 1st, uh, just a couple weeks ago. It, it's been just a total whirlwind in, in the best possible ways. There's been a number of new opportunities that come up, new strategies that have been formed, uh, and just all sorts of people who are in now interested in the system of less doing. So it's really exciting. But because of that, and because as uh, any of our longtime listeners know, I, I work Mondays and Wednesdays basically, it's just been really tough for Felix and I to fit things in. So I'm recording this one solo, and I might do a couple more this way, but uh, we will definitely have Felix back in action as soon as possible. So uh, anyway, I want to get on with the links before we get to today's interview. And the interview is with Shane Snow, who wrote the book Smart Cuts. Really interesting guy. He's a journalist. Uh, the, the book itself is great, but he's also known, uh, he was the guy who ate nothing but, or I guess ate, he drank nothing but Soylent for two weeks. Uh, and Soylent is that full-on meal replacement powder stuff. Uh, and it was just a really interesting article. And he's a cool guy. So I hope you like the interview. But before that, I got a bunch of links I want to tell you about. And the first thing I want to mention is that we got a really cool review. And I, I realized that we've been sort of lax on mentioning reviews and that's not because we're not appreciative because we I, I certainly am very, very appreciative and it, it helps us get up in the ranks. It helps more and more people hear this podcast and enjoy it. I just honestly, we, we seem to forget every time. So, excuse me. So the, the podcast review today was from Scotty Listener and he said, Ari is a Jedi master of productivity. This is such a valuable podcast that has improved so many different areas of my life. Highly recommended. Well, Scotty listener, thank you very much. And if you hear us read this or hear me read this review, please get in touch and we will send you a cool prize. I'm not sure what it's going to be right now. It could be a shirt. It could be a book. It could be uh, some gluten-free cookies maybe. No, I doubt it's going to be that. But just get in touch and we'll send you something because we do appreciate those reviews. Thank you very much. Okay, so uh, the next thing is that we have a question this week, and I want to get right to it. So here we go with the question. Hi, Ari. Uh, I want to begin by saying I love the program and uh, everything you and Felix are doing. Um, getting to the question, I was recently listening to another podcast, uh, Jesse Meacham's YNAB, uh, which stands for You Need a Budget. And he had some interesting things to say about the risks of automation, particularly when it pertains to finance. The essence of the point is this, automation makes us less aware and therefore less responsible, especially when it comes to managing our own money. Um, what are your thoughts on Mr. Meacham's point and do you think this is baseless or is there some food for thought here? Thank you very much. Okay, so first of all, thank you very much for that question. It's a, it, I feel like we could do an entire episode on the answer, but... Yes. So philosophically speaking, or from a high level speaking, yes, if you automate too much stuff to the point where you're losing control of it or losing awareness of it, then yes, that could lead to irresponsibility. However, I think that while that definitely is the case with certain things, with finances, you're actually less likely to do that because the whole point of all of these tracking services and a lot of these automation services is to make you more aware. So for example, one of the finance apps that I recommend is BillGuard. And BillGuard will automatically sort of find what they call gray charges. So they find the duplicate charges, the questionable fees, the questionable charges, whatever they might be, and it alerts you to it, which in itself is great. But also, if you have the app every day, it's going to pop up and say, you know, you have 12 new transactions to review or you have six new transactions to review. And it's not just your credit cards, your checking accounts too. So 
in a way, uh, certainly in automation, that you, you don't have to go through the nitty-gritty details. But if you go through that every day, which takes about two minutes, not even, it takes a minute probably to look at those daily transactions, then you can keep, be much, much more aware. Um, if you're just talking about auto-paying things, that I agree with. And I never, I don't have anything that's on auto-pay. I have you know everything that's on electronic billing, of course. But as far as automatic payments, uh, that I don't do. And I, I like to be the one that does that. What you should do with finances and with uh, these kinds of things is to batch how you actually process them. So I only deal with finances pretty much once, one day every two weeks. And I just batch everything together and do it all then. So that's a much more efficient way to deal with it. Um, I'm trying to think if there's other just full-on automations and and I'm I'm really struggling to to think of ones because really a lot of the tracking like Mint and and uh, um, a, a lot of those things are just really designed to help you become more aware of what's going on with finances. So what I would say is as a general comment, if you're automating things, you can build in checks and balances, and I have that with my podcast, for instance, with the whole process there, and with. Uh, certain invoice paying and things like that, there's checks and balances that you can automatically build in, whether it's something that's completely automated or it involves a person checking on it. As For instance, I have somebody now, a Fancy Hands assistant, checks any blog post that's posted on my blog because that whole process is done by several other people. So at the end, I want to have one final different person that checks several parameters to make sure it's correct. So I don't, complete, I don't really agree with what... Uh, he's talking about. I think that that's not automation. You know, if you're just sort of setting something loose and not really refining it or not putting some sort of checks and balances in place, then that's uh, just a failed attempt. That's not a proper automation. So I hope that answers the question for you. So let's get to the links. So the first one, this is actually funny because there's a bunch of SMS-based services that I want to talk about today. And I, I mentioned this a few times. I, I believe that this is sort of the trend that's coming along. I'm not, I'm not a, uh, a trend spotter by any means because anybody can notice that so many services are coming out that are just text-based with uh, the, uh, the invisible UI, as people are calling it. And I think it's great on the one hand because it is possibly the easiest business you can think of starting. All you basically need is a Google voice number, which is free, and the labor to fulfill whatever you're trying to do. The problem is it's very hard to monetize, I think. And uh, in my interview with Tim Ferriss, which will be coming out in a couple weeks, he said that something which I thought was a very good point was that the more and more we have these services uh, over SMS, it's eventually going to crowd the SMS space. So just like right now, most people use text messaging to really get a hold of somebody when they want to. If you're suddenly using texting for all these different services, then that's going to become a annoying medium as well. And then people are going to have to work on SMS zero instead of inbox zero. So anyway, the first one I want to tell you about is an app called Index, I-N-D-X. And it's a list of all of these different services. And right now there's about 20 in there. So obviously it's going to keep growing as there are more. But it's, uh, it's a pretty good list right now. It includes things like Go Butler and Magic and Luca and all these different things. So... If you're interested in these services, check out. And one of the re- one of the reasons why this particularly interests me is, as many of you know from listening, I don't like to have apps on my phone that I don't need. I have very few apps relative to what people would probably think based on what I do for a living. And uh, this enables you to get rid of that many more. So, index. Uh, the next one is, this is a little bit specific, but it, there's an article on Lifehack, and it's uh, it's called... 15 things to remember if you love a person with Crohn's disease. Now, I don't want this to be like a sob thing. And I've helped many, many other people overcome their Crohn's just as I did. And I believe that the formula for doing so is actually fairly straightforward. Not to say that if you're struggling with Crohn's and you think you've tried everything that, that you're not trying hard enough. That's that's absolutely not what I'm saying. But the the nutritional elements, the supplements, and the fitness aspects, I think, are, are fairly straightforward. It's really the stress management that becomes the most difficult thing in a lot of cases. Of course, if you have things like candida or some other sort of gut dysbiosis going on, then that makes things more complicated and adds you know, issues. But otherwise, it's the, the plan of attack, in my mind, is, is fairly straightforward. However, there are certainly 
a really upsetting things about having the disease, and it's a young person's disease. I'm not going to go through all these different reasons for you and all these things, but if you know somebody who has Crohn's and they suffer from it, obviously, then I really would recommend you read this article, which is we're going to link to it in the show notes, and just gives you a better understanding, I think, of what what the disease entails because it is a, a really, really nasty disease. But anyway, uh, moving on. So the uh, the next one is called Easy E A Z Y, and it's another text based service. So basically, you text a number to have any local service provider on demand. So this is kind of like I, f- I feel like this kind of like a cross between TaskRabbit and Thumbtack over text. So basically, you could say that you need a plumber or a tow truck or a babysitter, and they will find you the best provider for that locally, all via text. Um, and then the next one is another one that is text-based called Get On Demand. And it's basically, this is a, a sort of a weird combo, but you can get errands done and you can get medical consultations from a certified health practitioner. So what I'm gathering from reading the examples is I believe that this service is based in India and a lot of the recommendations medically are Ayurvedic, which is totally fine, but... It's just kind of a funny combo to me. It's like, oh, I would like flowers delivered, and can I send you a picture of this like this mole on my hand, and let me know what you think of it. Uh, so, but hey, one more thing you can do, but with text only. That's uh, get on demand. So uh, the next one is there is an article on Mercola called Six Reasons to Use Coconut Oil as Toothpaste." So this one is really cool. Now, if any of you know what oil pulling is, it's it's a really interesting Ayurvedic practice where you're basically swishing around coconut oil in your mouth for about 20 minutes, which is kind of hard to do, uh, but it's supposed to be really, really good for you, very antimicrobial, antibacterial, uh, great for the gums and the teeth. So this is an article about using coconut oil as toothpaste. Um, so the first reason is that uh, there's no harmful chemicals at all, of course. Uh, it's effective against ca- cavity-causing bacteria, there's no foaming agents such as sodium laureth sulfate or sodium laurel ether sulfate, things you don't want. It's inexpensive. Uh, you can use it on your dog's teeth too, and it's simple to make. So coconut oil toothpaste, all you need basically is coconut oil, baking soda, which acts as like an abrasive to help actually get the stuff off. Uh, essential oils can give it some flavor, such as peppermint oil. That would be a good one. You could add erythritol or xylitol as a sweetener. Salt. Uh, and they actually recommend bentonite clay. Bentonite clay is just like when you take charcoal after drinking, bentonite clay has similar properties in terms of being able to pull toxins out of your body. So there you go. Maybe uh, you'll start using coconut oil as your toothpaste, and actually I think I might try it tonight based on this article. Uh, okay, so the next one is a, a thing called getdrip.com, and this is really cool. So I'm I'm been... Ever since the live event, I've been really getting into growth hacking, which is, if you're not familiar, growth hacking is basically you know people figuring out methods and, and ways and techniques. And it's not deceptive. It's just cool ways of using data and split testing and all sorts of different elements to grow your email list or your subscribers and you know eventually your customers. So uh, in my new sort of strategy for less doing, this is something that I've been studying quite a bit. And uh, I'm not using GetDrip personally, but I tried it out. It's very, very cool. And it's basically email marketing automation for you. So they create a pop-up for you that comes onto your uh, on your website to get people to sign up. And then they even create a five-day email sequence for you based on your popular blog post. They do it all for you. And it's really interesting. So that they, they guarantee that it will help grow your list and get you customers. So if you're starting out with this or you're not really sure how you want to approach email marketing, this is a really good place to start. So check out Get Drip. Uh, and then the next one, this is called Crocosite. Now, I am a big fan of WP Curve. We're using WP Curve for my website. Um, Crocosite is similar, but they actually include hosting. So the idea here is it's about $79 a month, and it includes hosting for your website. 
as well as fixes, backups, speedups, SEO, design, and security, as well as analytics. So this is like the full, full package. I'm not sure how they're able to deliver, but uh, it's launching very shortly. So I'm very interested to see what they come up with. And then the last one I want to tell you about, this is an article on Make Use Of, and it's about using Google Forms to track your day. And this is not a new idea, but I just think that they listed this very elegantly. So you can use a Google Form and create your own Google Form that becomes your sort of daily questionnaire. And you can put anything you want in it. You know, how much did you work out? What did you eat? How much do you weigh today? How many times did you go to the bathroom? Any of those things. And you can use all that to compile data on yourself. And they, give, they go through several examples. Um, you, you could estimate how many steps you took. You, know, you can create a list where it's oh, two to 5,000 or five to 7,000. You can estimate all that stuff. And uh, at the end, you're going to get sort of a tracking result. You'll get a spreadsheet. And then you can do all sorts of things with that data depending on what you're tracking. But it's just a good sort of personal check-in process that at the end of each day maybe, you have, you know, at six o'clock, you have a reminder or a followup.cc that gives you this form. You go and fill it out and really track your day very, very simply. So that's all we have for today. That's all I have for today. Hope you enjoy the interview with Shane Snow and hope you're having a very wonderful, productive day. And now for feature interview. So now I'm speaking with Shane Snow, who is the co-founder of Contently and also the author of Smart Cuts. So uh, Shane, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Ari, it's my pleasure. Thank you. So uh, first of all, uh, why don't you tell everybody about Contently, actually, and and how that got started? The company's been around for about four and a half years. It started based on a couple of needs. One was I was a freelance journalist writing about technology and startups and business, and uh, and I noticed that most of my peers were freelancers also, and uh, and there was this increasing trend of journalist talent being treated as a variable cost by their employers. So basically, moving everything from full time to freelancers and contractors, and uh, on the other side of that. Uh, there was this big rising trend of brands that were becoming publishers or non-traditional publishers. Everyone was you know, producing content for the internet and blogging and doing social media. So there was a demand for journalistic talent more and more. Uh, and increasingly, those people were freelancers. And so a couple of friends of mine and I came together and we, we started the initial thing that was Contently, which is a, a marketplace for freelancers with journalism training to get pick up contract work, uh, to get gigs. And what that's turned into is, is now four and a half years later, is a, a software company that builds tools, free tools for journalists to manage their careers and paid tools for publishers and brand publishers and content marketers to you know, search and find talent, but also manage their publishing operations. So think of it like newsroom software sort of thing. And so that, that's contently in a nutshell. We have about 80 employees now and about half the journalists in America and, uh, and a whole lot of big companies using our stuff. Yeah, and that, that's that's really awesome. So now uh, you have <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it's 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 good. I mean, and, and I've I've seen some of the the output of, the, of your service before and stuff, and it, I think it does fill a really important need. So, uh, what what one of the things that interested me, of course, also is as a freelance journalist, you did some pretty cool stories. Uh, one of which was about Soylent. Mm-hmm. So can we talk about that? <laughs> Sure. Yeah, that's that's one of the more well-known ones I think I've done in the last couple of years, at least. Uh, so Soylent is this, uh, as you know, it's this product that uh, it's actually not a new concept, but these guys in California, some tech guys, basically. Hello. Is, hello. Oh, you you're, you're good. You're good. Okay. Sorry. T- these tech guys in California, oh. and then it cut out. But go ahead. Yeah, there are these tech guys in California that their complaint was that it takes too long to cook and to buy food and ingredients and to clean up. That was the reason? I, sorry, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but I, I thought that there was, it was just like a futuristic thing, like, can we do this? I didn't realize that they were actually trying to fulfill a practical need. Yeah, so the guy, Rob Reinhardt, his initial complaint was that he was busy and you know he's uh, in the software industry and, and he'd rather not have to get up and prepare a meal and so yeah wow. that was his initial complaint but also the the secondary complaint was it's hard to get all of the nutrients that you want you know all the vitamins hard to know what what you should have for a balanced diet 
And so he invented this stuff that uh, basically is all the vitamins and nutrients uh, that you could want in this rather tasteless smoothie. kind of tastes like oat water uh, that you could compare to like the goop on the matrix. Everything the body needs kind of without having to think about it. And they called it Soylent, of which is you know kind of a totally controversial name because it's based on that uh, well book that then became a movie with Charlton Heston where they made this food out of people. Um, and so, uh, so I got my hands on an early supply of it before they released it, and I lived off of it for a few weeks. And then I wrote about kind of the before and after. I took measurements, all of the, sort of my body composition, and uh, and you know got blood tests and everything. So I did a before and after, and I documented me living on this stuff. And then yeah, I published it with uh, Tim Ferriss on his blog, and you know millions of people saw it, and and I still get you know emails and 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 things about it. But it was it was a really interesting sort of human guinea pig experiment well so and, and i mean obviously people should read the story and we'll we'll link to it in the show notes but uh, i mean y- you're obviously eating food again now <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> although so, i do have i do have some so soylent i i mean living on it full time is kind of dreadful but it, it is quite convenient actually if you don't want to make breakfast or you don't want to have to get up for lunch so i actually do eat it once in a while i eat it a few times a, a week but most of my meals are food See, because the thing that I thought was interesting about it when they came out with it was uh, one. Well, well, first of all, it, they they recommend you take fish oil with it, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So that, I mean, that was one thing. But then I saw that. But the other one is that there there's been proven important functions to chewing your food. You know, and and even just the act of chewing, which is actually well, some people recommend when you make smoothies that you should have something in it that's chunky, like you know, even if it's chocolate chips, it doesn't. It's something that you chew on uh, mm-hmm. to get to get you certain digestive enzymes going. So to be simply drinking your meals seems kind of ill-advised. There's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of interesting discussion and, and controversy. I think the best thing that happened with that Soylent thing that those guys did is that they sparked a whole wave of debate about nutrition that, uh, that we kind of like regular people, everyday people had kind of, you know, ignored and, and gotten food that is easy to get to places where you know there are food shortages and logistically and could something like this work so yeah it did spark a lot of conversation but absolutely it's weird how your jaw feels if you don't eat for two weeks you know if all you have is liquid uh and uh yeah and the enzyme thing i mean there's part of the thing that they uh argue about on soylent side is that people say that you need natural foods or or whole foods in order to um to get the proper nutrients for your body to digest those nutrients and they say that actually scientifically that that's a fallacy, uh, that what you need are just the molecules. But I think what, what you mentioned is, is the part that, uh, you know, that is the real point is that there are processes that your body goes through when you do actually eat uh, that you know, it's not about the molecule itself, but it's about how your body treats it that ends up being important. Well, and, and I mean, you can say the same thing about different food preparations anyway. Like uh, eating beans is not the same as eating bean flour. Right. I mean, it's going right. to it's going to be a different experience. But there's also and this is actually what I'm, I'm really fascinated about, too, is, is sort of the emotional component to it. I mean, I remember mm-hmm. I mean, I haven't read the article in a while, but I read it, it with like it, it was a really well done article. And the experience was it it was scary, honestly, like reading <laughs> yeah. what you know, because I mean, you talked about how you like you just really felt like kind of like depressed at one point. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's this period where exactly where I kind of like had like I took a dip for the worse and yeah part of it is you know food is a very social experience um part of it also was I I was not getting enough protein I was as an early batch and I was actually straining out the chunks which happened to be the protein chunks and so there's a lot going on that happened to me uh but one of the things that we don't think about a lot but I think about a lot lately especially you know in, in my business as a journalist and in the business of helping you know businesses and journalists tell stories is a lot of our social interactions and the way we build relationships is over and around food. So if, if you're like me and you're drinking Soylent out of a Nalgene bottle every day for lunch, you're not sitting down with people and telling stories and you know learning about each other and building relationships, it actually ended up, it ends up being a little bit weird. I, I'm actually a big proponent of sitting down and eating you know, with your teams at work or with your families at home. Um, 
because of that, because that's how we come together. We build relationships and we make people care by telling stories, and often we do that over food. It's funny that you, you eat and you actually don't pay attention to what you're eating because you're paying attention to each other. But there's a huge cultural experience, and kind of I think a lot of it comes from kind of evolutionary biology, right? This is, is what brought people together in the first place. Right, and, and actually it's, it's one of the things that I've said on my podcast a number of times. I've heard a number of food people say this and, and health people too, like uh, – uh, really even hardcore like paleo people or gluten-free people, they'll say that you know they, they'd rather eat one of those foods that they don't normally eat with a bunch of friends and, and enjoy their company than, than the alternative of like hiding in the freezer or eating ice cream or something. You know? So yeah, they're, they're, <laughs> yeah. that's an important point. You know? and, and I think it, how much you eat, how quickly you eat, the kinds of foods you eat, like all of that is dependent on the kind of people you're around. So uh, there, mm-hmm. And this is something, by the way, that I run up against. Actually, this is a good segue into smart cuts. But I run up against this all the time that with less doing, I'm always trying to teach people how to optimize, automate, and outsource everything in their lives. And a lot of people look at that initially and they think that I just I, I don't want to have to do anything at all and I just really want to do like the one thing that I do well, which, which is sort of a little bit of the goal, but there's a lot of things along the way that I think are really important. And, and you know, for example, uh, at home, my, we don't have like a maid. We, we barely, we, we have three kids and we barely have a, a, a babysitter. Actually, my wife is, is kind of superwoman, but like I wash the dishes. We don't have a dishwasher. Like there's certain things that, yeah, you could certainly have somebody come and do those, but there's a benefit to doing them yourself. And there, it's important to do some of these things yourself. Yeah, you know, I think, and, and to that point of the outsourcing and automating and all of that, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, you know, and it does tie into what I write about, that often we get caught up in things because we're supposed to be caught up in things, or we do things yeah. because we're supposed to do them that way, when actually, you know, some of the most benefit you can get out of life and work is when you look at you take a contrarian view right you ask yourself on those things like the you know should we have a dishwasher maybe there's actually a benefit to not having a dishwasher it's pretty counterintuitive right uh, um, but i think that being in that habit of questioning you know things that you do by habit uh is uh is really important and i think yeah it can apply to you know to what you're talking about to home and and food and kind of everyday stuff as well as work you know how do you uh you know if you're shifting your effort from one thing to another, right? You're, you're outsourcing things that you're supposed to do, quote unquote, you know, by kind of conventional standards so that you can focus on things that are important or, you know, so that you can sort of free your, your mind or your capacity, right? I, I think that too many of us actually think that we're working hard uh, by doing things the, the way that, you know, we're, we're taught to do them instead of taking some time, stepping back and spending more time thinking about should we do this the same way or is there, you know, what if? Is, just stepping back to ask what if I think is, uh, is something that, that we sort of look down on on the person that's sitting next to the ditch thinking about the best way to do it versus the person that's in the ditch digging because that's the way, you know, that, that you're supposed to quote unquote do things. Yeah, I, actually, I think that's a really nice metaphor. But and, and so the, and that that is like the perfect transition, I think, to to the to shortcuts. And I want to talk about how the book kind of came about. But let's talk about lateral thinking. Yeah. So lateral thinking. So it's a concept that came kind of got coined in the 1970s by a, a psychologist named Edward de Bono. And lateral thinking is essentially. Uh, approaching problem solving sideways. So it's the way that a computer hacker might think or MacGyver might think. It's uh, Most of us are sort of naturally logical thinkers, linear thinkers. So we solve problems head on, you know, step by step, very linearly, kind of the algebra way of, of living life. You, know, you, you find the thing that you're supposed to solve and you systematically try and get there. Uh, lateral thinking is about shifting your perspective so that you look at the problem from a different angle. And, uh, and this is where breakthroughs happen. In, in the history of you know, arts and science and business, anytime there's been a breakthrough, not just incremental progress, but really step, functional, step function progress, uh, either on sort of a, a macro level in industries and business and, you know, and, and the arts, or on a micro level in people's lives, when there's a sort of a leap off the plateau, it's almost always because the perspective has shift, shifted. So lateral thinking is... The, the rather than attacking the castle wall, it's hiding inside of a wooden horse so that you can attack from the inside of the castle. That kind of uh, of way of approaching problem solving. And so the book Smart Cuts is about 
different applications of that by what are often you know talented people, but but everyday sort of relatable people in many cases who have managed to make incredible things happen by looking at the world a, a little bit differently by questioning sort of the assumptions and the norms and, and the regular path of of accomplishing a goal. Um, and so yeah, so I've been obsessed with that idea for a long time, and you see that everywhere when you start to look at sort of the people we admire most who have uh, accomplished incredible things, often not faster sort of than you'd expect and often not without working hard, but by applying their, their work in a smarter direction. Yeah. So, well, first of all, this is sort of a, well, it's not really intended actually, but the, uh, have you ever heard of uh, Escape the Room? Yes. <laughs> yes. Have, have you done it? I haven't, you know, it's it's and it's a big deal here in New York. Um, a lot of my friends have done it, but I haven't yet. I've I've actually wanted to. Okay, so well, for people, I mean, I think I've talked about it before on the show, but I, so I live in New York. I've done, uh, I think, four of the five rooms in the city here, and I've gotten out half the time. Uh, it's like a twenty percent success rate. Basically, the idea here for people listening is that uh, you're you're, la- you're trapped in a room for an hour, and the room is they have a, an apartment, a, a Victorian house, a uh, an office, a theater. And one other I'm blanking on. But basically, you have an hour to get out and you have to solve all these different clues to, to try to get your way out. And it's very, very, very creative. And basically, you need to have lateral thinking skills. And it's really interesting doing it in groups because you see certain people just get totally stumped at, at, at particular things while other people really shine. And then others kind of make it through. So uh, first of all, I mean, you, you have to do it. I mean, you'd probably, you'd probably do very well at it. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I, I, w- I would love to. And I mean, I love stuff like that, puzzles, right? And the thing about that I, you know, I kind of concluded about lateral thinking, you know, I wrote the book because I was interested in exploring how people who are really good at this, how they tick and wondering, is this something that can be learned or are people just naturally like this? And I'm convinced that it's a skill that can be learned uh, because once you start thinking about it uh, and once you start looking at the world from the lens of, that sort of questioning assumptions and lateral thinking, uh, everything looks different. It's like when I was a kid, I learned to skateboard, and suddenly everything looked like a skate park. You know, I'd go by the Arby's drive through and I'd be like, oh, I could probably do a trick off of that. It's one of those things that the more you start to look at the world this way and you, you learn the stories of people that, that see the world this way and operate, you know, from a slightly sideways perspective, uh, the more you're inclined to uh, to sort of free your mind when you're, you confront puzzles. So, I mean, who knows? Maybe I get super stumped on, on Escape the Room, but I, I feel like I've been studying puzzles like this for, for a little bit, and I think it would be a lot of fun. Yeah, and so, but th- that is, that's a good point, too, is that, uh, the, like, it's not, uh, I'm actually surprised to hear that you could learn in lateral thinking. Like, how do, how do, you, how do you learn lateral thinking? Well, some people, I think, are, are more natural at it than others. Yeah. Part of it is, and this is something I've been writing about lately and doing a lot of research on, people who are sort of outsiders who are, you know, you ask the question, uh, I mean, some people, I think, I think we should ask more, why do immigrants start so many businesses? And why are so many successful businesses started by immigrants? And why all these statistics about how corporate boards that are made of just men underperform, you know, companies that have men and women on boards? And it's... I think what you often see is people that are put in different situations than they're expected to uh, or, you know, who have to sort of travel and and essentially have this immigrant behavior, either geographically or socially or across industries, they tend to bring, you know, a number of skills. But one of them is this sort of naivety almost uh, where you're sort of immune to the norms of whatever you're getting into and therefore your mind is a little bit freer uh, to to think of these things, so I think some people are naturally good at lateral thinking because they've grown up, you know, traveling the world, or or they are an immigrant, or they you know they something about their background uh, gives them a different perspective and makes them feel a little bit like a stranger in a strange land. Uh, but I think you know we can train ourselves to do that in a few ways. One of those is seeing more of the world, you know, moving around, meeting people, putting yourself outside of your regular element. Um, you know, there's all sorts of research on creativity about how going hiking, why is it that when, you know, people come up with ideas when they go hiking or when they're in the shower or whatever, and it's because you're thinking when you're in a place where you're not supposed to be doing work, you tend to uh, let your mind wander a little bit more. And it's that wandering that leads to, um, to great ideas. And so there's basically the more you think about those things, uh, the more you can in sort of, uh, 
directed settings in, in deliberate settings allow your mind to wander and, and allow yourself to to not sort of cut off random trains of thought and uh, and so I mean there's in 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 the book I talk about kind of questions that you can ask yourself to spark this kind of thinking and, and so there's a you know a whole host of questions that I like to ask myself but often the best question is to say how would X, X being someone that's very different than you, approach this problem. How would they see this problem? How would a, as well say, how would a ballet dancer approach this problem? Or how would a race car driver? Or how would a baby look at this problem? Or how would my mother look at this problem? And by doing that, you, uh, you sort of trick yourself into changing that perspective. And you do that enough times, and you can often come up with, with different ideas. So there, it's almost like you can hack this, uh, this learning uh, how, to, how to think differently than you would normally think uh, in a way by asking the right questions. Yeah, see, and that that's interesting to me, like trying to pick a specific other perspective to look at it with. But what uh, the bigger thing that that brings up for me, which fits a lot in actually kind of the work that I do too, is that a lot of times we're in our own way, right? I mean, because mm-hmm. you're basically saying, you know, you have to free your mind. You have to kind of like get out of yourself, essentially. So it, it, I'm curious sort of why that is with us, that we have these things that prevent us from generally being able to see the, the field, I guess. Uh, is specialization like something that just makes us more efficient? I don't think so. No, there's an interesting concept uh, called cognitive entrenchment. That, uh, this is one of the things I, I touched very briefly on in the book, but there's a lot of great research about how when you become an expert at something, in a way you, you tend to get blinders put on you to, uh, like the more you, you, yeah, the more you get ingrained in something and the more you get good at something, the less likely you are to be able to sort of see outside of your sphere of influence or your, your sphere of training. And, uh, and that's often why, and that's why so often noobs, uh, people who are new to an industry, end up kind of becoming agitators and sparking change because they're the ones that don't know better or they, they haven't sort of had these sort of habits formed. So we're, you know, we're creatures of habits as, as human beings. Or we, we tend to, even if we're not thinking about it, even if we're trying not to, get comfortable with what works and, and with you know, our lives, we, we tend to slide into, uh, at least some of us, uh, you know, routines um, you know, in just the way that we live or the habits that we have. But certainly, psychologically, we slide into routines. And so when you, uh, when you become an expert at something, or when you even, I even see this in my own business, right? A lot of what we've tried to do in our business is be different. Sort of cut against the industry, cut against the grain, rethink the way that, you know, that business is done. But then we've been at things for four and a half years and now we have new people who come in and, uh, and it's, it's this weird thing that happens where we'll have people that come in from other businesses and, and they'll have ideas and we'll say, oh no, that's not how it's done here. And then I hear myself say that and realize, wow, we've already developed that cognitive entrenchment. We've developed habits of, you know, it's our own habits, but, uh, but it's very, very easy to just slip into sort of creating your own way of doing things and then not being open to, you know, to rethinking or, or to questioning yourself. I think that's how it happens. You know, with big businesses, they've just been doing that for a long time, but all of us can, uh, can slip into that very easily. Yeah, and one of the things that I do with people too is something I call uh, creating the manual view, and it really involves looking at the processes that we go through on a daily basis. And it's something as basic as uh, paying a bill. And, but it's exactly what you're talking about where somebody, you, you ask somebody like, how, how do you pay a bill? And they'll tell you and it's like, well, why do you do that? It's like, well, that's how I always do it. I've done it for three years that way. Well, that, that's not the answer. You know, <laughs> the answer right, for why right. you're doing something is not because you've done it that way. Right. That's, uh, that's actually almost, I mean, there's, there's sort of an analogy there in cycles of abuse, right? Or, or bad relationships <laughs> yeah, right. like, oh, I'm, I'm still in the relationship because I've been in it for so long. Like that's not a good reason, right? Uh, but and, but that's the way we are, I think. And and so that's kind of uh, we have to jolt ourselves out of that uh, way of thinking sometimes. Which I again I think is why uh, having other people from other perspectives come in and become sort of agitators in our own lives actually ends up being uh, uh, very helpful and, and useful. I, I you know that's that's another uh, sort of motivation for me sometimes too. But behind. Uh, I see a lot of benefit to being uncomfortable in, in, in at least like experiencing uncomfort sometimes and, you know, whether that's mm-hmm. taking a cold shower or forcing yourself to network or whatever it might be, because it's exactly that. It just kind of jolts you. I think that you're right. We like naturally look for 
uh, homeostasis. You know, we just want to get like to comfort mm -hmm. and then we don't challenge that at all. So it, it, yeah. Anyway, well, so that, that was like a, a long window way of asking that, but basically, uh, so you've always been into this. What, what were some of the really, what were like, what was like one of your, one or two of your favorite stories, uh, in smart cuts as far as people using lateral thinking to really better themselves? Uh, so I, there were people that I met that I felt like were just really interesting examples, and and some of the stories that I you know that I talk about are less traditional examples, not, not who you would think. Uh, so one of them, Sonny Moore, who's a an emo lead singer in an emo band, who then became basically homeless and then became the dubstep artist known as Skrillex. His story is really interesting. It's probably too long to, to talk about here. I, I think the most surprising thing, so there's people like that that I, I think just have such interesting ways of looking at the world. Probably the most surprising thing was when I looked at uh, statistics, and I looked at the data around U.S. presidents. This is the first chapter of the book, um, which is actually the last chapter that I wrote. Uh, when you look at the career paths of U.S. presidents, what you find is that, first of all, not only are presidents younger on average than senators, which is really interesting to me that uh, that th these people get to the top of politics, you know, as fast or faster than many people get into politics. Um, but the best presidents of the United States had the least amount of political experience, or at least elected federal political experience. Um, the best presidents were, you know, war heroes or police chiefs or businessmen or philanthropists uh, before they moved over into politics. And, uh, and so the question is, why would, you know, someone with less experience in politics make for a better leader, make for a better president than someone who you know, spent 30 years climbing the ladder? And it turns out that what makes for a good president, uh, I think, also makes for a good you know, manager or leader or, or, or worker or, or in general productive person, it's not how hard you can work. It's not how smart you are. It's not how well you can play the game. It's how adaptable you are. And so the best presidents of the United States were the ones that were willing to change their mind, to admit that they were wrong, uh, to, uh, to be flexible and to hear other people's opinions and perspectives. And, uh, and part of Part of that was that they came in from other places where they, they brought different learnings, you know, from being in, in the military or you know in the police force or as a philanthropist. Um, but they also knew what they didn't know, and they they were more open to being proven wrong. Whereas you know, presidents like Andrew Johnson, I, I think, is the classic example of this. He's a president who uh, you know had been winning elections since he was in high school, and uh, you know climbed the political ladder for 30 years, and then he became one of the worst presidents ever, and he alienated his own staff because so often he would say, no, I'm right because I've been doing this the longest. And no, no, I'm right because this is the way it's done. And he was known as being this really stubborn president. And he was terrible and people hated him. And he actually got very little done, uh, you know, in a time in the country when, when we needed a lot of help. It, you know, it was just post-Civil uh, War era. And, uh, and so I, I think that was one of the most surprising things to me is that even when you look at sort of statistically at the history of our country, that this idea of lateral thinking holds. The most progress we've made uh, and the best leaders we've had have been the ones who have been willing to look at the world a little bit differently than uh, than they were expected to. So, and that's, I mean, it, it was funny actually because just today we're, when we're recording this, uh, Hillary Clinton announced that she was running like, two, I think a day or two ago. Right. And uh, the, mm -hmm. the NPR reporter was saying that she would be following the same path that Obama followed, which was, uh, I think it was state legislator, then senator, then president, which is I, I, unusual, I guess. Um, so it's just, mm -hmm. it's, it's funny to look, you know, to look at that. Um, were there any stories or a story that, that didn't make the cut or that you were, I don't know, just didn't seem right for the book, but you thought were pretty cool? Uh, yes. You know, there's a lot of stuff. I probably threw away about half of the things that I wrote. I ended up writing, um, I ended up spending a lot of time with some urban explorers. So these are, are people who, you know, they'll uh, explore abandoned subway stations or, you know, climb buildings that are under construction. And uh, they're basically place hackers or city hackers. And so I spent a lot of time with, with some of these guys who, you know, there's sort of a spectrum of these people. There are people who are just pure adrenaline junkies, you know, adventurers that want to climb skyscrapers. And there's people who are in it for more of a social sort of movement, like our taxes paid for all these bridges, so we have the right to climb them. Um, 
and I tried to draw. I, I, I wrote actually the if you go to my website, the first bonus chapter that you have to unlock by finding a, a password within the book, which is uh, is kind of fun. Uh, a lot of people have found it. Um, but the first bonus chapter on my website is actually this deleted scene of these urban explorers who they wanted to discover Winston Churchill's uh, bunker, his secret World War II bunker that was an old London tube station that got bricked up and turned into this war bunker. So these, uh, these explorers were trying to, to figure out how to find it and then how to get to it. And a uh, really fun story of how they, they basically hacked their way into, uh, you know, into this secret bunker by you know, wriggling through drain tubes and figuring out how to get down these crazy you know, uh, air shafts. And, uh, and so originally I was going to include that in the book and, and try and draw an analogy from this idea of place hacking to uh, finding non-traditional paths to success. And it, it was a little bit too fraught of a, of an, a metaphor for, you know, the book I was trying to write, but I, uh, but I love the kind of the idea and certainly the, this adventure story is really fun. So there are things like that, that in the course of, of writing the book, you know, were great stories were great examples of lateral thinkers, but hard to sort of apply directly, you know, to, you know, to something practical because, you know, at the end of the day, the, the lesson is, oh great, these guys were smart and they figured out how to find this really cool thing, but not really a direct application to, you know, to business per se, um, other than maybe it's the story to tell your business colleagues over lunch or something. Okay. So, and that, that makes sense. I mean, I would, I would have loved that story actually, but I, I totally get what I didn't <laughs> fit in. Now, do you, in your like sort of daily life, is this something that you, you're sort of constantly questioning yourself or do you like go through a pro like, you know, once a day, it's like what you need to re like look at things or it, how does it sort of fit into your just sort of daily life? Uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that you have to, to constantly remind yourself to do. I think yeah. I mean, there, there's a few things that I do. Um, whenever I'm starting a project, I like to kind of go down the list of sort of lateral thinking questions. I, I like to list out one of my favorite things is I list out all of the assumptions inherent to a question or to a problem and then go down the list and cross them off and say, what if this wasn't true? You know, even very basic things like the assumption is that gravity is real, right? If someone, you know, if Einstein hadn't questioned that, we, we wouldn't have gotten the theory of relativity. So even, uh, even things like that. So I tend to start projects by doing that. And then there's, you know, there's other questions that you can ask, like the, the one I mentioned before, how would someone of a different perspective take a look at this? One of my favorites is to ask, what if we had to do it 10 times better, uh, so much better that you couldn't just put in extra hours? You know, what would you have to change? What would you have to reinvent? So I like to work on prod going through that exercise and then periodically, you know, assess projects based on that too. And, you know, another one of the questions I like to ask is, what would the expected way of accomplishing this be? And then ask, you know, kind of as a follow-up, why, why are we doing it that way? Is there a reason to go with the expected way versus, you know, thinking about another way? Is there another path uh, that we could take to, you know, to get to this goal? You know, it forces you to think about goals rather than solutions. Uh, so I try to work that into my, my work life. But to be honest, it's, uh, you know, it's not easy... Well, no, it it is easy to uh, to fall into habits and to uh, to not realize that you're assuming things, right? That, that things that you take for granted, uh, you have to remind yourself to to step back and to you know to to not take them for granted. And and I think that's kind of why I make lists, and that's why I use sort of questions as as hacks. Uh, but it certainly helped our business, and it certainly helped my my writing career to uh, to think about. Uh, you know, basically approaching problems, approaching projects and challenges um, from from the non-traditional angle, and sometimes it you know doesn't work, and sometimes it does. But at least spending the extra time to think through, I think, is important. You know, one other thing I'll say is one of my editors that I work with at Wired Magazine, he once told me that great stories, great articles, uh, are a product of three things: reporting, writing, and thinking says that most people are pretty good at the first two. By the time you write for magazines, you're pretty good at the first two. But the thing that, uh, that gets left out often is spending one-third of your time thinking. Um, and that makes a difference between something amazing and something that's just okay. I like that a lot. Um, so 
Shane, the last question that I always like to ask on these interviews is what are your top three pieces of advice or recommendations for people to be more effective? And you can interpret that however you like. Top three pieces of advice to be more effective. Hmm. Well, I mean, I think I've, I've talked through a few of them here, but the one would be to, uh, you know, to question your assumptions right, at all times and, and to make that list of assumptions and to, to rethink it. Um, that's one. Kind of along with that, one of the stories I talk about in the book is about professional service and looking for patterns and thinking than they do jumping in into the water. And that, I think that as a general piece of advice, uh, spending more time at the outset of projects, really thinking and studying and looking for patterns uh, um, is good to get into to be more effective. And, you know, I, I love reading. I'm obsessed with, with reading and learning. But I think if you want to maximize your productivity, you want to maximize the effect that you get, um, Find those kind of mentors from afar rather than just trying to, you know, sort of teach yourself in the traditional way. And those are kind of the things that the three patterns that I see in a lot of people who are very effective and, uh, and uh, you know, end up being these uh, very good at lateral thinking, you know, by, uh, by doing those things, you set yourself up to, uh, to see the world uh, differently than, than the average person uh, in your field or kind of in your life. Well, and those are, those are excellent pieces of advice. And uh, Shane, thank you for dealing with a couple technical difficulties we have. Can you just tell people where they can find out more about you and the book? And we'll put it all in the show notes and then we'll wrap up. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just my website is shanesnow.com. It's just my name. Um, you can get to everything and my contact info uh, and the company from there. Great. Well, Shane, thanks so much for your time. That was awesome. I recommend everybody read the book and, uh, and take care. All right. It's my pleasure. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Less Doing podcast. If you want to find out more information of the show, we would love to hear from you. You can go to lessdoing.com where you can look at Ari's blog, see the show notes for this episode, and also look at all the other episodes before this. If you want to send us a voicemail, we would love to hear from you and we'll play it on the show. You go to lessdoing.com, click on contact, and look on the right side of the page where you'll see a, a send voicemail button. Click on that and go ahead and record an audio message for us. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter. Ari's Twitter handle is at Ari Mizell and mine is at Felix Bird. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. See you next time.